morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning, to see you all for worship. It is so great to have so many believers in one room, all praising our great Lord and Savior. Thank you for coming. It's, uh, it's been a great spring. Uh, we're in spring, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so far, we've We've been in the midst of a, uh, a series, sermon series, on Ephesians, and last week we heard from Wilson Van Hooser, the RUF pastor, on uh, the unity of Christ and how Jesus is our sufficiency. And this week, we're actually going to be looking at the close of chapter 3, where Paul just bursts into this exuberant prayer in which he he celebrates that the, the power that we have because of our union with Christ. It's a great passage. It's one of the more memorable ones in Scripture. And uh, it's going to be a real pleasure to preach on it. Well, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, Lord, we are your people. Each of us is here for our own reasons. Each of us is here from our own walks of life. Each of us has their own burdens and anxieties, our own trials, and our own sufferings. But Lord, we are here because you have called us. We are here because you have called us out of our daily lives to turn and worship you in spirit and in truth as one body. That we might praise our great and glorious Savior Jesus. We thank you, Father, for calling us here today. We thank you for gathering us as a people and for binding us together. Jesus, we praise you. We praise you for all of your work on earth, for living the life that all of us should have lived, the perfect life and the one of faith, and doing all that for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for us for taking our sin and our shame and throwing it into the depths of the sea. Holy Spirit, we do pray that you enlarge our hearts, be active and moving in the service, direct our eyes constantly and only to our great Savior, our amazing brother, Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. So, you can't go long in the Christian life without hearing stories of heroes of the faith. You know, these are, these are people that just seem to be suffused with faith in Christ, and it empowers their walk so that they do amazing things. We see examples of that in the Bible. We see uh, many of the Old Testament prophets and judges do that. We see Paul here when he's speaking to the Gentiles 
we see him empowered for ministry, that he has this awesome ability to go and preach in synagogue after synagogue, not even counting that he might be in danger of his life, and he converts thousands of people. I don't know what that was. But we also have examples from history. We have people like Martin Luther and Augustine who, through the sheer words that they use, through um, all of the theology that they wrote, they changed the course of history. Augustine changed the course of theological history, and Luther changed the course of both theological and world history, starting the Reformation. And he did that all as a man of faith, walking powerfully. We see it in our modern time. We hear of people like Mother Teresa, whose walk with Christ is so close that she is able to minister to the poor in Calcutta and save Jesus through her, not her. Save many people. And we look at those people and we, s we see their walk of faith and we're like, those are super Christians. Those are super heroes. And we want that. We want that walk of faith. We want that power that they seem to have. We want to feel that. And yet we don't. Oftentimes, in fact, we feel like we're not super Christians. We feel like we are small and inferior, like our walk, our faith is so tiny that we couldn't do the things that they do. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We all want that power. We all want that spirit-filled walk. How do we get it? How do we access it? So we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Please stand as we read. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Amen. All men are like grass and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But not God's word. It stands forever. So let us turn our attention to it. You may be seated. So how do we access that, that power? We're going to be looking at three things today from this passage. We're going to be looking at who has this power. 
we're going to be looking at what is the power given for, and we're going to be looking, finally, at how powerful is it. So, who has this power? What is it for? How powerful is it? So, who has this power? Starting in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, Paul says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, so that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Who is he speaking to? So the obvious answer is that he's speaking to the Ephesians. This is the letter to Ephesus. It's the letter to all the, the saints in that region. And his prayer for them is that they will be strengthened with power. But it's, it is interesting, though, that he's talking to not just a few believers in Ephesus, but all the believers in Ephesus. It's more interesting that he says that this power that comes to them comes to them when Christ dwells in their hearts through faith. So Paul is speaking to the believers in Ephesus, but he's actually saying that all believers, all believers have access to this power, that this is a common thing. It is not, it is supernatural, but it is not uncommon for the Christian. In fact, it is the most basic part of our identity that we walk with the Holy Spirit in our breast, empowering our steps. And that through that, through our faith, Christ dwells in our hearts. Now, excuse me, this all speaks to the unity that we have in Christ. It speaks that we are united with Christ. And because we have that union with Christ, we're united with each other. We have a communion that all believers are mutually indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All believers have the Holy Spirit on them. So again, who is it for? It's He's speaking to the Ephesians, but it's for everybody. He's talking about the whole Christian family. Uh, I like how the, the King James Version translates verse 15. Um, there's some wordplay that's going on here in the Greek. There's, they use the word patera for father and patria for family, which isn't necessarily the word that we ordinarily use to translate as family. And... The ESV translated, translates it very literally, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. But the King James Version says, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. That this communion, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this union with Christ is the whole family of God. That's in all walks of life. That's in all space that's in all time every believer and so every believer has it every believer has access to this power but why don't we feel it 
Now, some Christians, whenever they're faced with this question, they'll think that it's because of some defect in them. They'll think that maybe their faith is too small. They'll think that they don't have power at all. They don't feel it, and so maybe, maybe they're not a Christian. And that is possible, you know, because it is impossible for a non-Christian to be spirit-empowered. But it's also possible, and I would say much, much more likely, that you just perhaps don't know what it's supposed to feel like. You see, we want to look at people like Paul, okay, and we see their walk, okay? So Paul, he was converted dramatically on the road to Damascus. He went out and he preached powerfully. He converted thousands of people. He didn't count it anything that he would be despised by his countrymen. He didn't count it as anything that he would be stoned multiple times, that he would be beaten up, that he would be imprisoned, shipwrecked twice, imprisoned twice. He didn't count any of that as anything. We see that and we think, man, he was an amazing man of faith, and he was. We see the results of what he did and think that he felt powerful. But listen to him from another letter that he wrote. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. He's talking about, he started the chapter talking about um, all of the revelations that he had been given from God. You know, all of the eloquent words that he had spoken, all of the visions that he had seen. And then he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You hear that? Paul, one of the strongest Christians that we could point to, that would ever live, he didn't feel powerful. He felt weak. And in fact, he rejoiced in it. He got to a point where he looked at his weakness and he said, because I am weak there, God is at work. And he cherished his weakness. And so we're looking for the wrong thing if we're looking to feel like we have this spirit-empowered walk. He places his power in every person for a purpose. His purpose for placing it in Paul was quite clearly the conversion of the Gentiles, the writing of many, many New Testament books, the passing on of revelation, divine revelation, and the conversion of 
a lot of the world through Paul's ministry. That was his purpose. But it didn't translate into that feeling of being empowered. He has a purpose for the power that is in each of you. But it's not necessarily going to feel empowering. It's going to feel like weakness. So what then is the power for? You know, if it's not for our own feelings, for our own edification, what is it for? So let's start again in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now there's a lot there to unpack. Why is the power given? What is the power for First, chiefly, it's given so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. When the Holy Spirit takes up a residence in your heart, it it is Christ taking up residence in your heart, and the power is there because of that. Why does Christ take up residence in our hearts? What does that mean? That means that we're rooted and grounded in love. That means that everything, our all, do, all of our desires, optimally, ideally, because we're in a fallen uh, world and we are a broken people, we know that it is not every desire, but optimally, every desire should flow out of that love that we are rooted and grounded in Christ's love. So, What does it mean then that Christ dwells in our hearts? We're rooted and grounded in love. Why are we rooted and grounded in love? To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's what it means. That the primary way of empowering you, the primary way of empowering Paul, the primary way of empowering every believer in the, in the history of forever is to know the love of Christ. Knowing the love of Christ, it's a supernatural thing. You need the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. You will not ever do it on your own. You will not ever feel like Jesus loves you without the Spirit's testimony to you. It's impossible for you to know. It surpasses knowledge. What does that mean? Well, we get a hint. He uses an architectural term here. He, all of those, the, the breadth and height and length and depth, you know, those are all architectural terms. He's calling us to envision Christ's love as a building. And it's a building that we can't take in. It's huge. To get a a sense of it, a very poor sense of it, imagine that you you were standing in front of a building that went 
100 miles this way, 100 miles this way, and 100 miles up and down. You couldn't see the top of it. You couldn't see the sides of it. If it was transparent, you couldn't see the back of it. It's too big. You can't take it all in. And he's impressing us with the infinity, therefore, of Christ's love. And isn't it interesting that Paul says that we are to do this with all the saints? What does that mean? There's a sense in which that we can't have a full view, a full orb view of Christ's love without other saints. That we need them. That we need other people to show us Christ's love. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, he was writing about friendship. And he had two really good friends. He had Charles Williams and he had J.R.R. Tolkien, whom he affectionately called Ronald. And Charles Williams died. And when Charles died, it was very sad for everybody, very sad for the group. And C.S. Lewis was incredibly mournful over it. But he kind of consoled himself a little bit. And he said, at least though Charles is gone, I'll have more, more of Ronald. And what he found, though, was that the opposite was true. This is what he says. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles's joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul seeing him in his or her own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim and Isaiah's vision are crying holy, holy, holy to one another. The more thus we share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. You hear what he says? That in his communion with his friends, certain parts of Tolkien never came out again because Charles wasn't there. And the same is true of our communion here, our communion with Christ, that each believer knows Christ in a very particular way, and their participation in the family actually reveals Christ in that way to the rest of the members. How many times have you been to a Bible study? You know, I sometimes read the passage before I go to a Bible study. Sometimes. But how many times have you read the passage, maybe once, twice, three times, and you kind of get a handle on it, you think you know what you want to say, you know what it, 
it means. And then you get into the Bible study and you start talking with the other believers there. And somebody says something that, boom, you never saw before, ever. And it changes how you view the passage forever. That happens a lot. And it's because somebody else can see more clearly than you. Somebody else knows Jesus in a different way and can communicate that to you. It's also, for instance, why we can sing these old hymns. And we can learn from those old believers things that we would never know about Jesus. We can learn from reading Christian biographies biographies of Christians, how Jesus was faithful to them, how Jesus walked with them. And when we do that, we get a sense of our communion even with saints that have passed before us. And it changes how we look at Jesus. So, that's why it's important to be in community. Why do we need to know, though, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? It's an awesome thing that Paul ends that section with. He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that even mean? Many commentators just don't know. They kind of throw up their hands. Like, I don't know. Maybe that, you know, we will love powerfully. But I think John Stott has it right when he says that when we're filled with all the fullness of God, that it's kind of the same sort of prophecy that's given about we shall be holy as he is holy. We shall be perfect as he is perfect. And I think you see what the fullness of God is a little bit if you look in Jesus' high priestly prayer. It comes from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. It's right at the end, verses 22 and 23. Jesus has prayed for the disciples, and he's prayed for everybody who will believe through their testimony. That means you and me. And then he prays, the glory that you have given me, I have given them. That they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus prays for the unity of believers. And says that that unity is going to resemble his unity with the Father. And that is the sense that we will have the fullness of God. That we will be filled with the fullness of God. So, Paul turns from this into a doxology. He's prayed this awesome prayer and then he just bursts out into praise. Doxology means glory, glorify glorification he's praising God and he tells us 
what the extent of this power dwelling in us is. He says, starting in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If you were to memorize uh, a verse of the Bible this week, I would memorize this one. I would imprint this on your brain, imprint this on your heart, and make sure that you never forget it. It is so rich. So, let's break it down. We could spend an entire sermon on just this verse. I, I promise I do not have another sermon's worth of content for you right now. We will be ending reasonably shortly. But, to break it down, he says, now, to him who is able to do, that word do it can also mean work, it can also mean uh, work of art, to craft. What can he do? What does that mean? That means, very specifically, that God is at work in you. He's not idle. He's begun a work in you. He will complete it. He is still working, even if you don't feel it. Because he is faithful and will complete it. All that we ask. He's able to do all that we ask. And in there, you get this glorious celebration that God actually responds to prayers. Maybe not in the way that we want, always. But we can ask, and he will respond. He is our father and loves to do that. He doesn't even stop there, though. All that we think. I mean, there are prayers that you have that have never been voiced. And yet God knows them. And he's able to respond to them and work with them and craft your life in response to them. And that's an amazing thing. That the Lord knows you so well that he knows everything you think. And that he's able to do all that we ask. All that we think. Not that he will. Because many times we ask for very improper things. We're selfish oftentimes in our prayer life. But for, for those things that we ask for, those things that we think of, that do accord with his will, he is able to do them all. There's nothing outside of what he can do. And then we get, we get to the, that word, Far more abundantly. It's, it's a phrase. It's translated as a phrase. It's a word, actually, that Paul coined. Like, this word didn't exist in literature before Paul made it up. And it's far more abundantly. And the sense of it is that it's infinitely more abundantly. That there are things that we could ask, things that we could think of, that... that there are things that God can do, sorry, that we can't even dream of. 
There are things that God can do that we wouldn't even think to ask. Needs that we have. And he can do that. So what does that mean for us? That means that the living God is dwelling in your breast. If the living God is dwelling in you, that means that the power that is dwelling in you is the power of creation. It's the very power that he used to craft the entire universe. It means that the power that is in you is the very power of providence that is upholding and directing the entirety of human history. It means that the power in you is the same power that empowered Jesus in his earthly ministry. It's the same power that drove him to the cross. It's the same power that took all of your sins from you and put them upon our great Savior. And it's that same power that caused him to cry out when he died and made atonement for you, that it is finished and that there is nothing left to do. And it is the power that raised him from the dead. We call it the resurrection power. There is nothing, nothing outside of his scope to accomplish in you. And that means at the bare minimum, the bare minimum, it means that nothing is ever hopeless for you. Do you feel weak? Good. God's power will be made manifest in you. Do you have relationships that have been destroyed that you have no idea how to repair, that you have no idea how to even go and say you're sorry? God can repair them. Do you have persistent sins? Sins that just crop up again and again and again and it just feels hopeless like you'll never get past them. God can and will heal you. Nothing is hopeless. So, so what? What do we do with all this? It's great. This is a great passage, and it's one to meditate on. But how do we actually employ it in our lives? How, how do we let this passage change us? I mean, the first is quite clearly to embrace your weakness. Don't let that be a barrier to you. In fact, like Paul in Corinthians, celebrate it. Celebrate it not because you are weak, but because in your weakness, Christ is made manifest and his strength and glory goes out to the world. And the second thing is that we do have the Holy Spirit in us. And that unites us together with our great Savior. It also unites us together as a family. We have a unity of believers. You actually, you cannot be a Christian alone. And when I say that, I don't mean that, you know, when you're alone, you're not a Christian. I mean that the simple fact of the matter is that 
as a Christian with the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you have been bound inseparably to your brothers and sisters. And that's a fact that will never change. And that has implications for how we interact with each other in our local communities. It means that as part of your job is to build and edify other believers, that when you are not in fellowship with other believers, you are depriving them of that. And so a real simple, a real good way to put feet to this passage is find a Bible study. Start a prayer group. Start a book club reading about ancient Christians. Be in a community together and that will build you up in your faith. It will build each other up. And you'll see the glory of the church shine. So, finally, give doxology. That's really, that's really the key. That everything that you do needs to praise God. If you're weakness, praise God. If you're strong, praise God. If you're in fellowship with people, praise God. If you sin, praise God that he has paid for it. And that he is renewing you after the image of your Savior. Make that the controlling thought of your life. The passage ends with a beautiful doxology. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That the glory of Christ will be in the church forever and ever. Throughout all generations. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do praise and celebrate the fact that, that you have bound us to our great and glorious Savior. That we have become a people, a kingdom of priests. That we are a light of your glory in the world. And that through our union with each other and our union with Christ, we Go out, and Jesus fulfills the great commission through us, calling all of our brothers and sisters to faith, calling all of our brothers and sisters into the family. Thank you. Thank you for letting us participate in this. And Jesus, you are the vine, and you are the one who gives us life let us rest in that. 
that our life is bound up in your life and your life never ends. And therefore, our life is eternal even now. Even now. Because of you, we have eternal life. Thank you for that. Holy Spirit, we do, we praise you for taking up residence in us. For empowering us when we need it. We praise you for revealing our great Savior to us and for building us up in knowledge of him. It is in Jesus' great, glorious name that we